matters. Performance matters. This is the hashtag that we normally use when members of my sub-team, so I work on Chrome Developer Relations. Uh, part of that is, part of the team is uh, focused entirely on performance. When we talk about performance on Twitter and so forth, we include that tag. If you want to include that tag, that means that my team will see it as well. If you don't, it's cool. I'll still pick it up on Frontiers 13 as well. So, um, I actually wanted to reset the performance scene a little bit. Uh, Steve did a really good job this morning of talking about the network side of things. Uh, Alex has just done some of the same. Um, but I kind of feel like when I look at this stuff, historically we've kind of gone, how long did this take to load? Did I do, how many requests were there? Uh, how big were the images? Did I have gzip on, e tags? You know, all this kind of stuff. And that's absolutely crucial. Let me say that again. It's absolutely crucial that we do that. However, I do feel like there is a bit of a question mark in our minds over, over the rendering side of things. Like, the job of the browser is to get pixels onto your screen, right? That's its job. And so it's kind of important that we understand the entire length of that process. So that's what I'm going to try to do. I figure there's loads about the first part, the page load. I really want to talk about that second part. Um, I am going to talk about this from a Chrome perspective, but the thing is, most modern browsers go through a very similar process. They do have slightly different names for certain things, but the idea of how they get the pixels to the screen is very much the same. So we're going to step through. We're going to go through this primer, um, and then we're going to look at some of the, the tooling around it. So we start off with our humble get request. Hello. Now, server is going to respond, unsurprisingly, with some HTML. Um, surprise, we get tag soup. So the browser, of course, has to do this parsing. It does, as we discovered, some very clever things about um, look ahead and so forth. But really, what we care about is uh, the fact that it's parsing. DevTools is going to show you this as parse HTML whenever that crops up. So if you shove something in the DOM as a string within your HTML, parse HTML. Now, we construct ourselves a tree off the back of this, which looks like this in this case. Great. Now, let's just call that the DOM, because that's easier than keeping that tree around. And the next step that we actually have is the CSS. And that's going to come from the user agent style sheets, inline styles, your style sheets, any other plugins that you put in. And we're going to combine these two. And this shows up in DevTools as recalculate styles. And, um, we basically combine the two, and there is a sound effect for this, which looks like <laughs> Not a lot of people know that. If you actually listen to Chrome very carefully, that's the sound it makes. It's not true. So our render tree looks somewhat similar to our DOM, except the things are now missing, right? Like head is switched off, script switched off, right? It kind of looks like a DOM, but it's not our DOM. It's our styled DOM. So if we have some CSS that says, don't display the section paragraph, why did you include it? I don't know. There we go. That disappears from our render tree. If we are including pseudo elements, yep, that's going to appear right after in the tree. Okay? But of course, we have a lot of CSS. The actual CSS in place here doesn't really matter too much. And um, this is the process that you saw with the animation before for the reflow in Mozilla. We call this layout in Blink and WebKit land. And uh, it kind of looks like this, really. <laughs> Geometry for the page, layout. It's basically figuring out where all the boxes are on screen. And I can't impress upon you the cost of layout enough. 
it is an, it's extremely expensive. The bigger the DOM, the more expensive the layout. If you change something, we're probably going to have to recalculate a lot of the, the documents. So we really want to avoid that where we can. So layout is a big deal, as we'll see in a little bit. OK, so we have those boxes. Sidestep for a little bit of terminology for a rasterizer. Now, those boxes are effectively vector shapes. They're not actually sort of mapped to pixels yet. We know they're x, y, width, height kind of data. But we, what we want to do is get to the pixels that we have on screen. And a rasterizer is a piece of software that will help you do that. It will get you from a vector representation like a box through to some pixels on screen. Step back in to, oh, actually, do the rasterizer thing a bit more. All right. If you and I were to sit down and make a rasterizer, this is what we would include. I know this because this is the rasterizer from Chrome. It's called Skia. So you've got things like drawing points, drawing paths, drawing text, lines, a bit of moving around stuff like uh, the translates and uh, saving and restore. So if you've worked with the canvas, you probably recognize it. It's effectively a rasterizer. So let's step back now. With that HTML that I had uh, and those boxes, I said to Skia, what did you do? How did you actually get those pixels on screen? And it went, ta-da! I said, that's a bit too quick, Skia. I need an instant replay. So, as we step through each of these individual calls, you'll see the picture building up behind me. We're adding the text. We go through, we draw some paths with the box shadows, clip some stuff, draw a picture of me, restore, translate, restore, we're done. Now, DevTools is going to show you this as paint. Okay. Now, one thing I want to point out is uh, operation number 15, um, which is draw bitmap. And I've been a very, very good person. I sent a really, really small JPEG down the wire. Yes, go me. Good, first part. Thing is, it's draw bitmap. It's not draw JPEG, or draw ping, or draw GIF. GIF, GIF, GIF. GIF, hands up for GIF. Hands up for GIF. You're wrong. <laughs> they're not. They're not graphics, are they? All right. I don't know. I, some people go, well, the, the creator of the, of the GIF said it was a GIF, so no. Um, so we actually have to go through this process of decoding that JPEG out to a bitmap in memory, which is a slow and cumbersome process often. In fact, it's extremely expensive to get from that encoded form to a bitmap. And of course, we're probably doing something like responsive. So what we're going to do is we're going to resize images down. DevTools again, if you spin down those paint records, you'll see image decodes and resizes. We'll look at this more in a bit. Now, when we were doing that rasterization, that painting, you may have realized that we were sort of effectively overdrawing the pixels over and over. We'd sort of fill it in as we go from back to front. What happens then if we need to, say, move this picture up here? Well, what happens is um, the browser chucks a, sort of an area around it and says, right, this bit is damaged. And so now we need to step through and re-rasterize step by step by step. And of course, it doesn't take much imagination to start going, huh, what if there's a lot of elements that need to be repainted as a consequence of what I did, what I moved? Thankfully, there is a fix for this, as it were, this behavior, which is the layer, the humble layer. Um, the idea is you can rasterize, you can paint into different surfaces. So this is actually my site, and the, the masthead carousel -y thing 
is uh, essentially its own layer. So uh, it gets rasterized independently. It gets painted independently of the, the site behind it. So you see, if you sort of look behind it, you can see the, the pattern's still there and so forth. Chrome's going to show you this in DevTools as composited layers. This is the idea where it goes, how many layers do I need? Um, putting them all, you know, making sure they're all in the right place, putting them all back together, and that's composite layers. Now, as a side effect of a, a creating a layer, the, um, the next and previous buttons are actually DOM elements on the top of my canvas, and they actually have to be promoted to their own layers to preserve the depth order. Otherwise, they'd be on that back one, and they're lost. So put it all back together, composite layers. So the layers thing is basically how we get around this problem. So you might be asking yourself, well, how do I create a layer? Fair enough. The most common one listed at the top is the, the 3D transform. So translate Z0 or translate 3D000 is the one that people often use to force layer creation. Uh, videos, canvases, composite plugins like Flash Silverlight, uh, animations on opacity. Uh, transforms, filters, and the last one is that next and previous button one. It got rendered on something on top of something that was already a layer, so we had to make a layer for it. This is very implementation specific. I include it because people are often interested and want to know, but it is a thing. I've put the subject to change because it's an implementation detail. It's not something you're going to find in a spec. So we've done all our painting. Great for us. Um, just for completeness's sake, I'm just going to tell you we actually paint into tiles. Uh, it doesn't change anything we do. I just like to include it because I'm a sucker for the details. All of this happened on the CPU side. Up to this point, we haven't hardware accelerated anything particularly, probably, most likely not, unless it's a video or a canvas, in which case those are the most likely exceptions. But everything on the CPU now, now all we have to do, and this is composite layers again, upload all those tiles across to the GPU, and don't be fooled by the animation. If the link between the CPU and the GPU is not good, like it's often not on, say, a mobile device, you're going to pay a tax for uploading that texture. So if you constantly repaint and you upload those textures over and over and over again, that's going to be quite bad. It's going to be bad for the sort of transfer. It's, well, it's bad to paint in the first place often because it's expensive. It's bad to transfer it because that's often expensive. Um, so you want to avoid it, really. Anyway, boop, there we go. That's how we got pixels from the get request to pixels on screen. Cool. I love this phrase. Uh, I, could give you, I could give you a bunch of rules. I'd love to. Um, and to be honest, there is some stuff in here in this presentation that is a bit sort of rulesy. Uh, but I'd actually much rather that everybody left going, I'm going to get into the tools. I'm going to learn to profile my site, my application. Rules change. One thing is great, it's in vogue one year, it's not the next. Just start using the tools, the profilers won't lie to you. You can adjust to what they tell you if it changes in implementation. Tools, not rules. And it rhymes, which Jake Archibald tells me if it rhymes, it's true. Tells you a lot about Jake. Now, Alex already, already um, mentioned this, but 100 milliseconds is the number we often assign. We need, there are two numbers here. This is the first one is like if I do something once, okay, like I resize something once, how fast does that need to be? 100 milliseconds is going to make it feel instant to the user. But we also have the other number that we all know, probably, I guess 60 hertz, 60 frames a second. One second divided by 60 gives you 16 milliseconds. Now, this is going to apply to interactions like scrolling, 
like dragging, animations, transitions, that kind of stuff. So these are our two numbers. So as we step through the tools, which we're about to do, I'll kind of remind you as we go, but these are the two numbers that we care about. Some stuff we're going to care about getting inside 100 milliseconds, other stuff inside 16. So styles and layout. I have here Chrome DevTools open with the timeline set to frames. I've pressed the record button at the bottom. Now I have a demo here. Left-hand column, right-hand column. The left-hand column, when I click this switch layout, it's going to animate like so. That's an amazing transition. Well done, Paul. Great. Now I'm back again. Now we're going to switch back to DevTools. I'm going to see what it made of that whole debacle. Now the thing is, it's telling me straight away that recalculating the style, which is actually the left column and the right column, just getting new widths. I'd set a transition on them, actually, as it happens. So there was, no, well, there was a teeny tiny bit of JavaScript, but there wasn't much. There was just me sort of basically setting a couple of values, actually changing a couple of classes. The widths were actually in the CSS. Anyway, two elements affected. Fraction of a millisecond, thumbs up for us. The problem now comes when we actually look at the, the consequences of our actions from the layout perspective. 35 milliseconds. We wanted 16. We got 35. We're not happy. We had to do the whole document just because basically the elements we were dealing with were actually quite high up. And there isn't much we can do at this point. This is what I was saying earlier. It's an, a very expensive thing to do layout. It's not something you're probably going to get away with inside an animation today, most likely. And especially, bear in mind, 35 milliseconds on desktop, on mobile. Expect five, six times-ish more expensive. But 60 frames a second is still your limit. So keep that one in your heads. So. If you've not used this tool, by the way, you're looking for all those bars along the top to get under that 60 frames a second line, if you can. So styles and layout then. Small style changes, big layouts. It doesn't make you feel really good, does it? But not all layout is triggered by JavaScript. I think that's a really key point. You can trigger layout with CSS by changing a width or ch having a transition on that's triggered on hover. The whole point is, if you change the geometry, we're going to trigger some layout or reflow. Layout isn't painting. And it sounds like an obvious thing to say, but if you change the, the geometry of the page, sometimes you're going to repaint, especially if things were grouped together, like when I moved the picture of me. But sometimes you're actually not. So it's kind of helpful to then say, OK, which styles affect layout? And it's pretty much these, really. This is in, this is in order, as you go down the left column and the right column. Um, width, height, padding, margin. If you change these either through JavaScript or through CSS, you're going to incur some kind of layout cost. Let me just let that soak in. Okay, cool. Carrying on then, let's do another record with another demo. Let's do some layout thrashing for funds. Okay, change all these paragraphs to match the width of the green block. It was a horrendously long time. If you didn't notice it, don't worry because we're going to actually have a look how long that took. I have a sneaking suspicion about one and a half seconds. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. One and a half seconds. Again, we were looking for 100 milliseconds. We got one and a half. Not doing so great there. So let's find out why. Well, of course, you already know, I'm sure. We calculated a style. Then we did some layout and so on. Let's go back, re-record, and let's do it properly this time. Happy days. Do it right. 
Now, we wanted 100 milliseconds because it was just a single resize thing. It's not animating. We got 39 milliseconds. Pat on the back for us. Super. Despite the size of the layout, that was actually OK in this case. So let's have a look a, bit, a little bit more why. Again, we already know, I think. But this is effectively a read, write, read, write, read, write kind of situation. Um, so each write is going to basically save what the last layout you did. <laughs> Whoops, got to chuck that out and do it again. So you go around the loop and it goes, oh, I better do a layout for this one. Uh, can you change that paragraph for me? Super, that's going to invalidate the layout I just did. Thanks. And so on. Layout thrashing, you know that. Great, so let's do it right instead. Let's move asking for the block width, which isn't going to change. Just move it out. Read, write, 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 write. So you want to batch it in this form. Now, fast DOM, new library by a guy called Wilson Page. Definitely worth taking a look at, because that demo I just showed is actually pretty trivial, and you might be sort of saying, well, I'm not going to get caught out by that. Of course not. Um, in a complex code base, it's possible you could, you could have unexpected interactions. So what FastDOM does is it basically can, makes it convenient to batch up. It will redo that for you. Um, you might want to look at it. It might just be something you want to have a look at. Here's it running, um, just in case you wanted to see uh, layout thrashing uh, really destroy things. Oh, and another tool, the FPS meter inside DevTools. Frames per second. Here we go. So we have this four synchronous layout button pressed, which is the one that's basically layout thrashing. And we have our little animation running at ooh, nine frames a second. It's not good, is it? Good. So let's go with fast DOM for a split second, see what it can do. Hey, imagine the difference. OK, it's not quite 60. I was doing screen capture at the time, but what's the frames per second between friends? All right, we're good. So that's the frames per second, uh, the FPS meter. That's a really useful tool. If you just want a quick kind of how am I doing without getting too knee deep in sort of what my tools, what my timeline, what's all that going on. Paint then, let's have a look at that. So what have we got? We have a tool here. This is uh, enables continuous page repainting, which is basically going to tell us if we were to paint this page from scratch, if we were going to rasterize everything from scratch, what would the time be? And it's currently four milliseconds to do all that. That's cool. Let's add something expensive like a box shadow. Now we've jumped up to 40 milliseconds to paint this page. And we can switch it off and on. And we get a sense of, OK, when I do this, yeah, OK, it's pretty obvious because I'm in control. This is, you know, I can see exactly what I'm doing. But if you look at it in the other direction where you've got something that is expensive to paint, you go to your project now, you switch this on, and it says um, this would take me 100 milliseconds to paint. This is the position you're now in, effectively, right? So the thing that we can do, which is actually really neat in DevTools, you can hit the H key on your keyboard, and it will start hiding things. So you can start stepping through, switching off individual elements, or you could even go down to the styles there, switch off some styles, and you can actually watch what happens to your paint time. It's extremely useful for kind of finding, do I have a, an expensive element? Let's Summarize then, finding expensive to paint elements. You can hide them nice and quick and watch what happens to your paint time. Super useful. Paint rectangles, another tool. See, we've got loads of tools in DevTools for all this. It's great. When I select uh, that portion of the, the page there, well, Chrome says, well, I had to do the highlight on that text. So I'm going to chuck a red box around it, let you know that there's a paint that happened there. 
When I scroll the page, you'll see there's one on the scroll bar as well. Okay. This is cool. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something really bizarre and just animate these all in a circle. Why wouldn't you? It's like every project you've ever done. Um, but you'll notice I've got one big red box. And this tells me that everything, all those boxes were actually all grouped together because they all got invalidated by the animation. And so um, we had to chuck a big red box around it and say, this all needs repainting in one go. Now, this is where the translate Z hack. It is a hack. I wish we didn't have to use it. But it does come in handy here because we can promote all these boxes to their own layers. And now we basically ask the GPU to just move them around for us. So instead of repainting, we're not painting anymore. We've painted once, but we've asked the GPU to move those layers around. Now, there is a, a downside to this tail, which is if I now animate each of these boxes, and I'm animating the border radius, you'll see I get a bunch of red boxes. Each one of these layers now needs to be individually repainted and uploaded to the GPU. So it's a balancing act, OK? It's a very much a balancing act. But this tool is brilliant to, to kind of highlight to you, did I paint something on the screen? How big was that paint area? So that's important. So check your paint areas. If you have the entire viewport in red, and you're painting everything, which is often the case when you've got something like a fixed position element. And I think that's something that we're going to try and get better on. Uh, you'll probably see big flashes of red. That should be an alarm bell for you. I would like to go and fix that, should be the answer in your own mind when you see that. You can promote elements to their own layers to isolate them. So if you're going to move something around, and it's kind of affecting all the other elements, you probably want to request animation frame. Good. That's an interesting one. Anybody use jQuery's Animate? Yeah? It uses set interval today. There is a patch available for it to not. If you're interested, got that from the jQuery source. Um, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, but it's interesting because obviously you're, um, we're all dependent on libraries. We don't typically write everything from scratch. Is the library doing something that you wouldn't do? It's an interesting question. Again, the profiler should tell you that um, and let you know. So request animation frame. It's a good thing. Touch handlers. Not a lot of information about this one out on the well. Um, largely, again, it's an implementation detail. Um, but your, your average modern browser isn't uh, just one thread, oddly enough. There's in Chrome, um, well, basically Chrome. All of them. Yeah. There's a compositor thread. Now, the compositor thread's job in this instance is uh, to basically move those pictures around. So we did all the painting. We have all those pictures ready to go. You do a bit of scrolling, and the compositor thread goes, I could just move those pictures a bit. Move them up, move them down. It's fine. I'll deal with this. The main thread, as we all probably know, is where things like layout, JavaScript, style calculations, all that good stuff happens. So what's the problem then? The problem is this. We've added a touch start handler. And what happens is the compositor thread gets told about a scroll, a fling action, for example. And it goes, ah, I can't deal with this straight away by myself uh, because there's a touch start handler. And the developer might have put event.preventDefault on that, which would mean I shouldn't scroll. I should wait for the main thread to tell me what the response was. Now, the problem is the main thread is then busy doing some layout or some such. 
And our touch start is queued up for the end of that. And it comes back. Meanwhile, the compositor thread was blocked. It couldn't do anything except wait for the answer. What does your, your end user feel? Well, they just feel it sort of stick. Like, oh, why is this not scrolling? Ah. Of course, you get bug reports and you feel sad. Um, who doesn't? Oh, bugs. Um, so bear, this is something, this is interesting for me. I'm actually interested as how we, uh, to how we can get around this. This is a sort of an architectural thing. I appreciate that. It is subject to change. It is very implementation specific, but it is a real thing. If the main thread can't answer the question, the compositor thread can't scroll the page. Interestingly, there is a 200 millisecond timeout after which a touch cancel will be issued. So if you were relying on touch start or touch end or touch move, and you got a touch cancel, what do you do? So touch handlers then, what can we do? Well, we can keep handlers down to a minimum. That's a good thing. If you can do what you're trying to do without doing a touch handler, do it without a touch handler today. This, I, I'd rather I didn't have to say that, but it's true. If you can avoid them, avoid them. Bind close to the element. Now, I, I come from oddly enough, a flash background, where what you used to do is you used to put everything, like you used to handle stuff like this at the root. So I, when I do touch handles, I was like, bind it to the document, and then I'll capture them on the, I'll get them on the way up, and I'll, then I'll figure out which element it was, and it'll be all good. The problem is, most of my touch handlers actually concern an element that's quite far down in the DOM. So the thing about this is, if you bind closer to the element, there'll be times where we can actually be a bit more intelligent and go, ah, I didn't need to check with the main thread because I'm pretty sure that the thing that was touched is not the thing that's got a touch handler on. If it's always attached to the document, well, it's always going to get fired even if we didn't need to do it. So if you bind a bit closer, you might find that sometimes you can avoid the work. Yay! Bind late. Um, sometimes, again, I would just go, just chuck it on the document and forget about it. In that situation, um, there may be a view on top or something like that that means I could never trigger the, the touch handler in a meaningful way, and it's just sat there going, I'm just listening to touches, don't need me. Um, take it off. Just remove it. It's basically, this is all about getting rid of touch handlers whenever you don't need them. There you go. Pro tip. Scrolling. Whenever you scroll, scrolling causes paints because the new content appears on the bottom of the screen and we have to paint it, those tiles. That's where the tiling thing comes in. Okay. Because of the fact that it involves painting, avoid changing anything that you can during a scroll. So you might want to, as Alex said, debounce your scroll handlers. His looks a little more elegant than mine. Mine looks a bit like this, which is basically to say, just get the value, store it for later, and always schedule a request animation frame to deal with it. So if you, if you get 5, 10, 100, whatever, just grab the last one and then, you know, this is great. The last thing you want to do in this on-scroll handler is change anything at all on the page, if I'm not clear enough. You know, um, we see this a lot um, when we're profiling parallax sites. Yeah, you know who you are. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Governor, I didn't mean anything by it. Creative Director said if everything moves, everyone will love it. And for bonus points, when they scroll up and down, it goes left and right. Way! You know it. I know it. At least if you debounce it, you've got a better shot at actually success rather than a jerky, horrible mess. 
Doesn't mean you should do it. Uh, animated GIFs. Yeah, this is, this is a, for bonus points here. Oh, I get really stressed when I see this slide. Come on, come on, come on. It's all right, it's just a GIF. It's not actually loading anything. Um, my stuff appears over the top. I am proud of me, my application loaded, game on. The thing I forgot to do, whoopsie-daisy, is I forgot to switch off the animated GIF. Right? You, you know what's happening. You know what I'm going to tell you, right? The browsers all keep painting, with exception of Firefox. Well done, Mozilla, you got it right. When, when Firefox goes, ah, that's covered up. I'm not going to bother painting that GIF. They do that right. Uh, every other browser, far, as far as I can tell, actually goes, you know what, I should just repaint everything. <laughs> Certainly the GIF bit. Um, I tried to check with IE uh, 11. I couldn't get an answer from it. So that one's a bit of an, uh, an unknown for me. I don't know whether IE gets it right or not, but certainly Firefox does, so thumbs up for them. Uh, finally, to kind of close out, um, I just want to bust a few myths. Boom, wide open. Um, JavaScript. We hear an awful lot about JavaScript, and uh, that's for good reason. You know, it is what we think of most often when we talk about the front end and performance. As you've seen, and as you probably realize, most of what I've shown you today isn't JavaScript, in fact. Most of it is triggered, or a lot of it is triggered by JavaScript, but itself, it itself, the work is done in C++. Layout is not running in JavaScript. If you've got a layout bottleneck, making your JavaScript go faster is not going to do much for you. Maybe rearranging your JavaScript so you don't trigger layout. Okay, fine. So when people go, Slow JavaScript, it, it's definitely my bottleneck. I, I just know it is. Um, I always get a bit like, can we profile this? Uh, so what I'd love for you to start doing is that. Start treating them with deep, unyielding cynicism. And just go, I, I can't stand this. Because the reason is, let's say a new browser comes out tomorrow, a new handset, and everybody goes, wow, this is 2.3 times faster at JavaScript. Ooh. If you've got a bottleneck in paint, or in layout, or in style calculations, or in fact pretty much anything that isn't JavaScript, it's not going to help you in the slightest. And it seems like, I feel like it's the, it's the only metric that, that is sort of banded around. So we need to start sort of saying, actually, I need to know about some other stuff besides JavaScript. Uh, the DOM is slow. Ugh, it's slow. Uh, oddly enough, the, actually talking to the DOM is pretty fast. The problem is, let's say you chucked an extra DOM element in there. Well, of course, you've resulted in a lot of extra work. Probably parse HTML if it was in our HTML. Parse HTML. Then we're going to do some calc styles. Then we're going to do some layout. Then we're going to do some paint. Then we're going to do some composite. That's why it's slow. It's not that the DOM itself is slow. It's the side effect of talking and changing things in the DOM. So I'm going to close out a little bit early. It's good. Loads of times for questions. Great. Performance is a feature, not a unit test. I like to trot this one out because if you wait till the end of your project to go, are we fast? No. Then you've got a problem. Because now what are you going to do? You're going to ship something that's slow, maybe. Uh, but you're certainly probably not going to go back and rip out all that code because that took you months to build. It's, not a, it's, it's something you prioritize alongside your other features. It might be number one. It might be number five. If you can just start treating it as a feature, that's good. As you've hopefully guessed from all this, you are actually in the driving seat. 
The browser does do a lot of work, but you are in the driving seat. You get to control an awful lot of what it's doing around this. You know, do you, you need to, actually it's interesting, talk to your designers. Maybe you can drop the drop shadow. They're actually all fond of flat right now. It's playing right into our court. Hey look, I made it go faster. What do you do? Drop the box shadow. Um, maybe. Drop shadow incidentally has actually got a lot faster and it could get even faster. Again, I guess. So don't be too mean on drop shadow. Oh, box shadow, sorry. Um, I see a lot of people do this one, or the, the, the inverse or converse of this one, where they go, I've, I've, I've really concentrated on my for loops and my while loops. They are fast. But that's not their bottleneck. Profile your app, then fix the problem you have. Don't fix the thing you think you're going to have before you've actually profiled it. I predict I will have a problem with JavaScript. That's not the way to do it. Uh, it's a kind of like the first one, actually, this, but profile early, profile often. That's a good thing to do. Uh, tools, not rules. Uh, you know, thank you very much. There is. Tons of stuff at jankfree.org, like talks and slides and whatnot. And I reckon it's time for the questions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Woo! The money. It's, it's really hot. I know. I, I, Animated I GIF. Love, yeah. It just, if one take. That's all it took. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Um, that was great. Thank you very much. Oh, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot you covered. Um, first up, let's yeah. talk about touch. Um, you talked about touch handlers, blocking, scrolling. Uh, does uh, the rule of, of touch handlers, blocking, scrolling, does that also apply to click handlers, the click event? Um, yes, but for a different reason. There's actually a bug open about click handlers today, um, which is about if you have expensive work that happens inside a click handler, everything. Everything gets paused until the click handler has resolved. So if for some reason you dis decide to do a bunch of work. But um, is it analogous to the touch? Um, trying to remember off the top of my head. I don't, I think, don't it think it is. I don't think it is. No, I think it's just the touch, touch handles are done inside the composite what, thread. Does click follow mouse up? Yeah, I think, I think so. it does. I think so. I think it does. But in any case. So the, the order is, is uh, touch down. It goes through all the touches. And then it goes into mouse down because right. the touch screens, all yeah. the, the mouse events are emulated. Yep. And then when after mouse up, it finally fires click. But anyways, that order means that um, you're not, basically the browser, the whole thing with, with touch is that you need to, um, the, when you put your finger down and you scroll, the browser needs to know, do I have to do work before I show an update? Yeah, exactly right, exactly. Um, but there is, as I say, there is, um, an interesting side effect is on the click handler stuff. Um, if you are going to do heavy work inside a click handler, it's very much like the on-scroll um, stuff. Defer it with a request animation frame. Deal with it later. Um, because it allows the click handler to end and other events to get handled. Um, basically, the reason that uh, the, the, uh, Chrome can't exit the click handler is because it, it has to preserve event order. Um, so it has to make sure that the click event handle uh, was finished before it started doing any more work. So, yeah, um, it's an interesting one. Yeah. It's a bit freaky. Uh, should we just avoid box shadow? No. 
So I can use it? Yeah. 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 Just know what you're getting into, I think. I mean, like the, the painting, um, those tiles that got painted, we keep them in memory, right? So we, we pay that cost uh, once. Um, when, when it gets combined with other styles, sometimes it gets more expensive. But no, don't shy away from it. Just profile it, figure out is this, is this styling worth the painting cost that we're going we're gonna to pay. That's very individual to your project to kind of, it would be a rule, wouldn't it? It would be like going, I, we will never use box shadow. And I think if you walk away with that, then that's not what I want you to do because the algorithm, the implementation for a box shadow could change tomorrow and all of a sudden, well, that's, that's old advice, isn't it? It's, it's rubbish. Uh, similarly, uh, someone asked about, um, is there any advantage to doing complex animations inside of Shadow DOM? Would these be seen as a separate layer? So the only time, as far as I know, that that would be um, advantageous is, OK, so there's this concept of layout boundaries. And it's the idea of how far up the tree do we have to go before we're confident that nothing else has been affected by this layout change. And most of the time, you'll see actually in DevTools, it gives you the scope and the root of a layout operation. And an awful lot of times, um, you will see that uh, it's the whole document. So you can create layout boundaries. Um, I didn't include that in this, but there, I, I have a library called Boundarizer, which actually puts on boxes around your elements and says, these could act as layout boundaries. So if you animate something inside of there, it might only need to go up to that element before it can you know, say, you know, I don't need to go any further. We're adding it to DevTools. Yeah. The yeah. Jump to, so when you click on an element, you should be able to, with the context menu, hopefully be able to say, jump to the layout boundary for this element. The question is, is Shadow DOM going to help? As far as I know, Shadow DOM won't be acting as a layout boundary. Right. So, no. It also won't help with any sort of paint. Uh, no. Separate, separate concern. Yes. And I think this goes back to the difference between DOM, uh, DOM tree and render tree. Yep. Where render tree is mostly what, we, what we're concerned with here, and DOM tree is a separate concern. Yes, basically, yeah. Because all that layout, the geometry and stuff was all inside the render tree, as far as we're concerned at this point. Um, Bruce Lawson had a question around uh, image decoding costs. Yeah. Uh, WebP versus is JPEG? Four times, I believe, yes, at the last that's count. That's correct. Um, so, yeah, that's a, a, an interesting one. I know that the WebP team are, uh, you know, very keen to reduce that as far as humanly possible. There was a really, yeah, there was a really big thread on um, on the Blink Dev mailing list when uh, animated WebP. Right. That thread, and they went through and landed a bunch of optimizations to improve the decode time of animated WebP. Um, and that happened after that 1.4 benchmark came out. Okay. I don't, so. Yeah, so, so watch this space. Um, the chances are any decode is going to be completely overshadowed by resize operations that you do. Yep. Um, so even if you spend, you know, it's like the difference between five or six milliseconds on a decode, your corresponding resize for something might be sort of between 20 and 30 which is going to happen at the bitmap level because you've decoded to a bitmap. So it, that, at that point, the resize doesn't matter whether it came from a JPEG or a ping or a GIF or a WebP. So taking into consideration um, everything that you talked about as far as the image resize and decode, mm -hmm. what is the most appropriate way to handle responsive images and high DPI? <laughs> Easy. Che cheers, dude. Just piece of cake question for um, you. 
I, I'm going to say I honestly at this point don't know because we, we are paying the resize cost on the client side. But maybe you, I mean, do you? No, I was going to, I thought that there was um, doing a, a scalar um, resize going from uh, a factor, so like going from well, like two, two or to four one. is like thumbs up compared yeah. to like one point one. Apparently, exactly. apparently not. No. No. I asked the I asked the engineers because I was going to oh. I was going I was like this question will come up because this is that that technique of sending down the like the really big image, um, and then yes. just so it looks good on Retina, and then the right. lower just kind of scales it. No. No benefit. There's there are there. I so I was like, is it better to? So the, the actual question I asked our engineers was, let's say it's like two times versus 1.1 times. My assumption is 1.1 times is actually better because there's less resizing. And, and the engineer went, yeah, it's complicated. Sometimes we'll just kind of tweak things. Sometimes we'll go all out. Sometimes we might need to resample. Sometimes we won't. The honest answer is, the data doesn't exist yet is the honest answer. And this is why when we're looking at these proposals for responsive images, which I think is a great thing generally, I would love for us to make sure that we include the impact on rendering as part of that um, assessment as well to kind of go, what does this actually mean um, all the way through from request the pixels? But we uh, today, I don't think we've got the data. Yeah. I guess. It seems... Speak your mind, Paul. Yeah. Feel the answer. We talked about this a few times which, when it comes to imagery size. Yeah. And how it's killer. It is. Um, but it's extremely hard to do a responsive site without, uh, without scaling images at all. Correct. Because across screen sizes that you're targeting, you're going to have to end up with, uh, with images that move. Ah. And you can create... 50 different assets, I suppose. Part, okay, so I actually wonder whether the, 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 the final solution will end up being, hey, paint everything, but treat my images as a lower priority item. Because they're so expensive, um, let's resize, get everything else painted, mainly the text so people can, you know, read the stuff that's on the page. And then when we've got a spare few milliseconds, don't block the painting of everything else on this, just when that's all done, now paint my images. I would love for us to see that, but there is there's discussion of a lazy load on images, but at the moment there's no discussion on a lazy decode, and I probably need to kick that off, I guess, to say how about a decode and a lazy resize thing as well. Well, I guess they're kind of related. You know, you don't want to send it decoded without resize. Anyway, be declarative on the HTML. Why not? Let's let's go all in. Uh, <laughs> um, one more question on images. What is more efficient um, as far as the rendering costs, a single sprite or multiple small or non-sprited images? From which perspective, I guess? From a network perspective, that's obvious, right? The number of requests. But from a painty-paint sure. paint point of view, yep. uh, it should be. Go on. You look like you're poised to answer your own question. No, you answer this. Oh. I'm going to ask a follow-up. No, you, you no, go, go for go, it. Go, no, go. no, no, no. Don't let me. It's going your way. Uh, uh, no, okay. I think I my I, my hunch is, and it is only a, a hunch, is you um, it would be the sprite would be better because of something from a memory point of view, you wouldn't have the overhead of individual images with their attached decoded versions. You would have one image with one decoded version, but the actual number of bytes for red, green, blue, alpha would be the same. 
and so the follow-up there is uh, if I do have, if I'm using a sprite, um, like sing single sprite image, using it in five locations, my memory consumption for that is going to be just once, even though it is displayed five times. So from an implementation point of view, um, we carry an image cache which has the encoded version inside the cache, and then the most recently used decoded version, uh, decoded and resized. Uh, so something like a sprite is probably not going to get resized. Um, so in that, in that situation, yeah, you would expect to see that you are paying that cost for that single image and it's just being reused around the place. That would be my guess. Okay. Okay. Um, how is, uh, when you showed before um, the composited layers mm. and kind of the order of those, um, how is that managed? And is that like, is there any relation between what we saw there and uh, Z index? Um, so, I, I, so again, I, this is actually a question that I asked, um, and it turns out there are there are two kinds of layers. Um, there are layers at the WebKit and Blink level, which is where stacking contexts and all those kinds of things come in, which is where Z, Z index or Z index is going to change. Um, and create those kind of conceptual st uh, stacking contexts. But that doesn't necessarily correlate to the number of compositor layers. So when we've got this sort of tree of all the things that need to get painted, that gets often sent over to the compositor for the compositor to go, well, actually, how many layers do I need to paint now to satisfy this? So the, I believe there can be a correlation, but it's not necessarily an obvious one. There are a lot of edge cases, and it, it is a complex beast. Sadly, it's not like, yeah, do this, it's all fine. Uh, one question that comes up a lot, so the use of um, promoting a layer, mm. uh, so applying, for instance, a translate Z onto a layer, uh, onto an element to, to turn it into a layer, um, what, is the, what is the cross browser story with that? Yeah. So um, that is, it is a very specific thing to the WebKit Blink. So it, it is unique, to, it, it, to some degree, it's unique to Safari and Chrome and Opera. Um, and because um, there are changes that can happen in Safari that are different to Chrome, obviously, there's no guarantee that those, that list of criteria about creating a layer will either stay the same in Chrome and Opera or that it would match up entirely to Safari. Um, it's an implementation detail. So, what was the question again? Whether people should do it? Is that always the cross-browser story? Uh, Firefox, as far as I know, um, their reasons for promoting are similar but not the same. Yep. And are they going to auto-promote fixed position? Yes. The, uh, the fixed position one is actually the, one of the biggest ones. The reason we don't currently promote fixed position elements is because it changes the text rendering. And it's something that we're working on to try and What's make the deal that. with that? So you can have two types of, thanks for asking, uh, two types of text rendering. There's grayscale and um, subpixel, and you will switch from subpixel uh, to grayscale if it goes onto a non-root layer, i.e. It's, uh, it's, you know, you created a layer, the text rendering will switch from subpixel to grayscale. A lot of people go, ooh, when they see grayscale. Um, the Caveat for this, so this is why we don't do it, right? So we don't ruin your text rendering. The caveat for this is that you can't tell the difference on Retina, so we actually auto-promote on Retina screens. Um, my hope is, in the long term, that this is a non-issue, it's a non-thing, 
Um, but as I said during the presentation, I'm pragmatic enough to realize that most of the time, you're probably going to know better and go, actually, I know I'm going to repaint that thing. Just put it on its own layer. And for Chrome, Safari, and uh, Opera, that's currently the way you do it, as far as I know. Um, a brand new question uh, just came in. How do icon fonts affect render time? I guess this would be, um, so using a font with mm. icon mm -hmm. dingbats mm. um, for symbols rather than a sprited image, um, how would you evaluate the performance difference I in reflow and repaint? Reflow and repaint? I don't, I have not spent enough time looking at that as a comparison, if I'm completely honest. Have you? Mm, no. Took it to the other poll. But I would say, uh, Layout, so the example that you showed before where like um, the two columns mm. uh, with all the text, it was all animating. Yeah. The layout cost was enormous because it had to figure out where all the text positions are and like figure out where the new, yeah. the new paragraphs end and yeah. such. So that's, we're figuring out the geometry of the, all those text nodes and how much space they take up. Yeah. With an icon font, um, the br you often don't set like a, a width and height on that unless you apply inline block. Um, and if you do apply inline block, then it's good. Um, but otherwise, you have to wait for that font to load, the, the font loads, then the browser finds out the new geometry of the page, and then right. it incurs a layout. Yeah. Um, a, if you're using a sprited image, you set the uh, size of the box already ahead of time. But it, yeah. But that I, would I, I be the I one difference I know of. Yeah, but it, I wouldn't want to say what kind of impact that would have. It may be negligible. It may be that. It doesn't make much difference. There's so many advantages to using the font, too, because it's mm -hmm. vector. Oh, yeah. So it's awesome. But I don't know. Don't so know. I wouldn't like to say. Try it. Profile it. Let me know. Yeah. Write it up. <laughs> <coughs> um, lastly, how did you make your slides so good looking? Thank you. Oh. <laughs> um, no, but actually, did, uh, so did you... Did you apply the, the things that, that were in your slides to your slides? Did you profile it? Um, Did so, you use tools, so not the, rules? So yeah. So the story, story of this is I actually started building the deck about five or six months ago. And Paul was in London, and he stood next to me, and he just, he just put a frown on. And I was like, what? And he went, this makes me so sad, bro, because there are enough decks out there. You don't need to make your own. Oh, I was I was giving you I was giving you a hard really time hard, really because hard you time. were you were making your own slide uh, framework. Right. So then I went on a big yeah yeah. You see how much it affected me? Feel bad. Feel bad. Anyway, so I got to the end of this process and I was like, right, I need a deck that lets me explain this process of getting a request all the way through to the pixels. And ultimately, no deck is designed for this. They're all just like, here's your bullet points, rotate, here's your bullet points. And I was like, no, this is not going to fly. So I ended up having to craft my own. Yes, I did profile it, but I actually I went crazy for the stuff that I talked about in there, like using transforms. It was th one thing sort of animating left and top because I didn't want to have layout cost. I used Canvas extensively um, because um, I know that it, when they're bigger than 256 pixels, they get hardware accelerated and things like that. And it's actually, when you know you're running in Chrome for your presentation, you can be a little more specific about some stuff and, and basically play to that a little bit. So that's what I did. But I did, I did yes. I, of course I follow the tools, not rules thing. <laughs> of course I do. Of course you did. And why wouldn't I? Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. <sighs> Paul, thank you very much. Ah, thank you.